Hello and welcome to this edition of Digital Cultures, the podcast from Cambridge Digital Humanities, an interdisciplinary research centre at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode, we examine the Faustian pact we make by simply going about our daily digital lives and what that engagement could end up costing us. Appropriately enough, we start in a shop. Or do we? Good morning. Could you give me your full name, please? My name is Catherine Anne Galloway. Catherine, can you follow me, please? Thank you. Okay, I'm sitting down now. I don't quite know what's going on. Everything is moving too fast. We know where you're going. And where you've been. We know who your friends are. And who is not. We know your desires. Hopes. Fears. Passions. Obsessions. Dreams. We know you better than you know yourself. We are I. And you can be too. I'm being invited further into the shop now, where the marketing team of this product, which I still don't know what it is, are doing what they're calling dressing an altar, which is, seems to be involving putting a tablecloth out in front of some huge black screens. These are the items that represent my connection to the earth. These are the things that tie me here, and I'm placing them on the altar. These are flowers from A Midsummer Night's Dream from Shakespeare. Puck picked them for me. He keeps asking me to follow him. A gift of saffron for happiness. I'm laying down the digital soul. Goethe and Mephisto are on their way, and you can be buying back your soul if you wish so. So this shop is going to sell me back my soul? How much data on me do you have? Since you've walked in this room, we've collected data on you. You have complete possession of your digital data, but you've given it away already. How much will it cost me to get it back? How much are you willing to pay for your digital soul? Are you going to sign? The contract, we will be your servants, your slaves, if you sign the contract with your own blood. These are the people around me on these screens that have decided to buy back their data in this way by giving a piece of themselves. Yes, indeed. They've all bought back their souls and now they're part of I. Well, we're now further back in the rear section of Souk, this incredible pop-up shop that isn't a shop, but it might be a shop. We're not quite sure what it's selling yet, apart from my soul, which is a little bit alarming. Um, And I'm joined around the table by Dr. Anya Neumann, who's a a theatre maker and researcher in the digital humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm also joined by Roxanne Kindersley, who's an artist and letter cutter 
um, at the Cardozo Kindersley workshop here in Cambridge. Carrie Parker is also here, the filmmaker and digital artist. And I'm joined on Zoom by uh, Beatrice Merch, who's in Utrecht in the Netherlands as well. So first of all, thank you all very much for joining me and for becoming We Are I. I'm still not totally sure, Anya, what that project is. What is We Are I and how have I become part of this we? What we are is an artist collective and we are going to have a set of activities as those collective of artists and researchers and we will invite people to come in and we are going to really set up a theatrical event okay. where you can step in to the not too distant future and our goal is I guess to raise critical awareness about the dangers and the benefits, the fears and the hopes of our digital future of your own personal data Yes, Roxanne, what do, you work in a very traditional medium, a very permanent medium, which is, of course, stone cutting, which, you know, you leave a permanent trace on the streets of Cambridge and, and far beyond. How did you get involved in We Are I and started thinking about your digital future? It does seem almost incongruous that someone who is so completely analogue would start looking into something digital. But I think this is part of it, is that because I am rooted in tradition and in craft and handworking, and my, I truly believe in the value of making things by hand, seeing the rise of AI and digital influence brings up questions that I feel very sharply in contrast to my lifestyle. And now while many people are feeling themselves slowly sweeping into this, and we see this as you entered earlier for our little thought experiment and dive in. We asked you a little bit of data about yourself, only a small amount. I asked your full name and your date of birth, which is already quite a lot. And there's always a moment of doubt, but people are giving these things away constantly online, instantly, without even thinking about it. The rug is being swept from under their feet and they're falling into this digital trap. And that annoys you and you think, I need to do something about this artistically before it goes too far. Artistically, certainly, but this is this is bigger than just artistry this is how we live and it affects all of us and if I want to live a life that echoes with who I am then I don't want us to be sucked into a digital world that can take away our information and our freedom before we've even realized we've given it away I know that one of the things that inspired you quite a lot when you were thinking about this project, all of you, was Black Mirror, which is, of course, the science fiction series on technology uh, devised by Charlie Brooker. And it started on Channel 4 here in the UK and has been bought by Netflix. And in describing his series when he launched it, he said, this series, Black Mirror, is all about the way we live now and the way we might be living in 10 minutes' time if we're clumsy. So actually, when we're talking about the future, when you're talking about the future, you are not talking about even 30 years from now. You're talking about 10 minutes from now, a year from now. Carrie, can you comment on that? Yeah, I think we might actually be talking about uh, what's happened in the past, actually. My, my idea for the dramatic premise of this was that there will be a marketing team for a company uh, that could probably raise a lot of money if it offered the optimization of personal data in anticipation of the singularity. What is the singularity? It is the point at which computers become 
so smart, so intelligent, so fast that humanity would be swept aside and become redundant. I was thinking that surely there's a market for digital optimization with the promise that you will be merged with the cloud. So in other words, when computers become smarter than us, you are imagining in a theatrical way with WeRI that there could be an option to somehow avoid being swept into the singularity. You know, I would say there's a market for it. The, uh, I think the technical hurdles will never be achieved, but we can certainly get people to part with their money for digital optimization. And the promise of us doing everything we can to ensure that you will be included uh, in a future that, yeah, basically doesn't need you. Uh, uh, terms and conditions apply. This is above and beyond the digital haves and have-nots. This is literally the digital independence and the digital slaves. And maybe that's what we're doing already. I realized a while ago that our commitment to digital technology is basically religious. We have faith that the data will be looked after, that it will be optimized, that by giving away it, we will be better. I mean, everybody knows that Google spies on them. Everybody knows that Facebook sells stuff. And I thought in a madman kind of way, make that a positive, that total transparency, total sharing of data could be better if you give it to I, if you give it to a company. So there's this faith in Yes, somebody will look after us, but we don't completely understand how it happens. You know, we need it. It's our everyday life. We live in a secular society, we think, but you cannot kill God. God will just take on another shape. And uh, the shape that God has taken on now is the Internet. It's perhaps the metaverse, Anya? Mm -hmm. The new term is metaverse, which is this total mer merging of all digital, completely immersive. And I mean, I come from the South. That's evangelical revelations. That is the, the second coming. And when we talk about the singularity, we're talking about the second coming. It's just, you know, without God or his son or any surrogates cut out, we're cutting straight to the chase. And I think that's what we're exploring here. Not whether it's viable or not, whether there's a market for it. Okay, so WeRI is encouraging ordinary people like myself who have already given away extraordinary amounts of information about myself to take back some degree of control. If I could bring in Beatrice Mersch here. Um, Beatrice, I know you grew up in Northern California, just next to Silicon yes. Valley, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when all of this crazy internet stuff seemed like a twinkle in somebody's eye. And by the time you had grown up, it was a, a serious reality. Can you tell me what it was like in America at that time when people were saying, do you know what, there's this new thing and maybe we could do this with it. What was that like? Well, it was, it was very much a time of exploration and hope and imagining the future and what it could all be like. And, you know, very different 
internet philosophers had different ideas, Ted Nelson, Stuart Brand, and then later Brewster Kahle at the Internet Archive, and it's just hopeful. But some people, like um, when they created the Electronic Frontier Foundation in the Bay Area, were looking out for electronic civil liberties. And I remember running into them in 1994 and becoming aware of their Blue Ribbon campaign um, when I first got online at university. So 1994, someone was, or several people were already ringing alarm bells, sort of saying, hang on, there could be an ethical issue here. Did you understand the potential for things to go quite quickly out of control or were you just terribly excited? I was terribly excited. The Blue Ribbon campaign did raise awareness. The Blue Ribbon free speech campaign from Electronic Frontier Foundation and that was in the mid-90s when the, the internet was just Obviously, it had been around for 20 years with the military, but it was finally starting to be appreciated and used at universities. And then slowly AOL came in. But basically looking at civil liberties and free speech when creating websites. And I I learned in 1994 to make HTML website and, and had an online presence since then. So it was it was kind of baked into my internet presence from the get-go. So you were aware that this was something that you needed to protect in a way? Yes. I know that you also do, you're a web designer, a photographer, and an internet activist, and that side of things has led you into work with um, archive.org, which has the rather massive mission (laughs) of... um, (laughs) Yes. This is a quote, to provide universal access to all knowledge. Tell me how that works. So Brewster Kahle uh, is the the mind behind this idea. And basically, um, websites are used as citations. And when you go to a website, especially for an academic paper, and you have in your bibliography, you have cited a web page, and then you read that paper 10 years later, and you go to that web page, maybe that web page does not exist, or the web page does exist, but the content has changed in the past 10 years. And so the Internet Archive captured and crawled websites as much as they could. They have petabytes of data. Um, I don't know if they now have exabytes, but when I was working there, they had petabytes of data. In real terms, what that means is something like well over 569 billion web pages stored and saved for yes. eternity as a trace yes. of what we've been yes. doing online for the yeah. past, what, 25 years? Yes. So you can go back and they have the Wayback Machine. And so you can go back and look at what the website looked when the paper was written, when it's cited. Obviously, it can go in and cache, grab copies over time. And you can look at a timeline of the evolution of the website. But it doesn't have a search thing. You must know the URL. How does this link then to the WeRI project? What are you bringing to the quartet of people involved in this? Um, I try and bring some some knowledge of lifting off the lid of what our, our experience is 
online. Very often we just use the web and use the internet and agree to terms and conditions without actually reading them and knowing what they're doing and understanding the data. So in the research um, and, and development part right now, we've been looking at various examples of what has been done to show. And a great example was Signal, the privacy chat app, bought advertising via Facebook and Instagram to show advertisements and show the data that Instagram knew about the user who was looking at it. So I know you are a woman, you are living in England, and you wear glasses. Instead of, let me show you this ad that is using the data, it actually showed you the data that it knew about you in a text format as an Instagram post. And so they did this and Facebook did not like that and they shut them down like that. (laughs) So that is one example of lifting off the lid of how data is collected about us and used. And so just at this point in time, just kind of how do we bring this to the consciousness of the, the theatrical experience that we're going to be doing? You were aware, Beatrice, much younger than I was. You know, 1994, you were starting to think, hang on a minute, this uh, brave new world has a few pitfalls ahead. When did you, Anya, start to get interested in this idea of digital ownership and ethics and what the ordinary person might be giving away without realising? I really started engaging with it during the pandemic. And... Yes, I've been working in digital humanities for quite some time. Um, I've worked in digital editing and actually looking at the genesis of of text and and, and creating different data models for for research. So I was quite aware of how much data is needed to um, create representations of text online. Yeah, I guess it was really only boiling up during the pandemic when I realized that our entire way of perceiving reality and being in space and embodying space has drastically changed. And there was a redistribution of the digital and the physical, and there was no longer the binary between digital and um, physical, especially when we talk about Zoom. We have a very strange dynamic. It sucks us almost into a two-dimensional representation of us. And I guess another point of departure was my conversation with Carrie. We talked a lot about virtual reality and why it didn't work, why it didn't take off. And we had a rising frustration about its very clumsiness and and the prosthetic. These goggles um, or the headsets you're putting on is really embodying the clunkiness of the medium. And we really wanted to create an artistic virtual reality. And in a way, when you step in to the Faust job, into what VRI does, these goggles are actually looking at you. You no longer have to put them on, but you're stepping into a three-dimensional physical space and you can directly interact with the digital. And, and, and of course, you're not fully immersed, but my idea is here that you're actually stepping into a website in three dimensions. You described to me when we had a pre-chat on the phone that We Are I is a little bit like a band. It's not necessarily a collection of academics and artists together as such, but you said it's like a band and you add, you know, guest artists as required. And talking about guest artists, 
somebody you've got on board, if we're talking about spirituality, you've signed up Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, what's going on there? Anya, how did you get Rowan Williams to sign up for a project on digital technology? It really emerged from, from our conversations about storytelling. I'm really interested in theatricalization and rituals. And Rowan and I started talking about the theatricality of sacred spaces and how might that interrelate to how we are interacting with the web. And of course, in the wake of, of the pandemic, Rowan Williams was preaching online as well. And we have been talking about phenomenology and questions of the body being projected into two-dimensional space and what happens to us, what happens to free will, our agency. So they are all questions which now relate to our daily lives and questions of free will, um, which, which he's very interested in, in participating. Google famously used to remind staff company-wide, don't be evil, a digital age commandment if ever I heard one. But are there enough people today who are still prepared to ask the tough questions on where we're going and whether we should even be going there in the first place? Beatrice Murch has the long view. Yes, there are. Certainly there are academics doing this. Um, and then there are also, within corporations, there are departments dedicated to this. Um, I know that there was recently some controversy over the firings of women in Google who were dedicated to looking at the ethics of, of AI. So yeah, it is definitely on the radar but sometimes things move too fast and decisions are made for the money rather than for what is right. Do you think there's a gender question here in terms of women perhaps being the conscience of the internet mm. and men possibly being so excited by what they can do by coding themselves into a corner and then suddenly going oh whoops we didn't quite mean to do that is that too stark a suggestion well it's interesting because women were the original computer programmers because it was all typing and then once it became something more the women were let go and it became a much more male dominated thing in silicon valley has become very much a bro culture which is not what it was like when I was affiliated with it in the late 90s and the early 2000s. There was obviously the commercial aspect, but there was much more hippie vibe and what, what are the possibilities and what can be done and looking forward. And yet I'm very happy to see more and more women in tech and more and more women in persistence of leadership, which is really great. But as the consciousness or the the ethics behind it, I, yeah, I would hope so, but it, it's a humanity thing. It's not just male-female. Could I ask you what your hopes and fears, I mean, in an ideal world, Beatrice, you know, if we, if, if we even kind of progress forwards, let's say, two years, five years, yeah, where would you want it to be? If, if projects like We Are I do succeed in raising public awareness about some of these issues. Where would you want the conversation to go in the near future? And where, in your worst nightmares, would it be? I've always 
been fascinated with, you know, user contribution and user development content, um, blogging and photography and sharing that information. And so, and experiencing life through other people's eyes and, and getting that kind of thing. So if, if it could be steered more towards that, that would be really good. But a, a lot of it is consumption and it's not necessarily consumption of physical things, although you can order things online and get all that, um, but just consumption of movies and gifts and reading and, and all that kind of stuff. So the act of creation, if we could, that can be more brought forward, that would be really wonderful. That's what's so fascinating to me about the fact that you have chosen to, to situate your first creative act as We Are I as the collective that is We Are I in a shop. And you're basically saying this is a shop space where you can buy something, but it's also something deeply creative. Roxanne, can you talk to me about your role as, I mean, you are a pure artist, and yet you were very convincing when I met you at the front of this shop in selling me back myself. How do you, how do you make those two things work together? Well, when Carrie and Anya came to me at the very end of lockdown, I think that was my end of uh, pandemic lockdown celebration, was them appearing on my doorstep and announcing that they were opening a Faust shop and saying, perhaps you'd like to get involved with designing a shop frontage. And so, of course, I come from a strong tradition of permanent handmade work. But of course, every designer and every artist is not designing just for the now, they're designing something that should last in perpetuity. This is why we do it. We want people to enjoy it in the future. And it's, it's no different in type design. And they told me, we're designing a shop that's going to be 30 years in the future where people are going to sell their soul. And I thought, well, when people think of the future initially, they think of something outrageous and strange and having geometric shapes, almost looking back at cuneiform and taking examples from the past to create the future. But then you realize that Actually, people don't want something gimmicky and strange. They want something that echoes with what they see now. And we look at ourselves now and tied into our digital experience, we see it's becoming bland. There is a control in us. When we look across the internet, we find ourselves, we speak about echo chambers in what we hear politically. We have the same thing in design. So you're saying we're all dreaming in Times New Roman, basically. We're all dreaming in Helvetica right now. <laughs> My purpose here was to create a futuristic digital aesthetic that would speak to us now. So we're looking at a typeface that is readable. It doesn't cause friction when you look at it. You want something that actually you look and just accept. There's no strange bits that jump out at you and make you go, oh no, someone's tried to make a futuristic typeface. This is ridiculous. But in fact, something that sits well with us. And this is the process we're going through now but not only a typeface, but designing a logo that can represent a very large concept. The idea that we are uploading ourselves into a singularity. I'm interested in your idea of frictionless typeface because, of course, that's our whole experience with the creep of artificial intelligence, isn't it? It has been so smooth. You know, five years ago, we wouldn't dream of doing half the stuff we do now. Carrie, you look like you might not agree with that. I'm talking about the Turing test, that if you create a computer program that can fool you into thinking that it's a real human being, he said the two ways for that to be passed, one, 
by making a computer that can think, and the other by fooling people into becoming stupid enough to believe that my phone is smart, that uh, artificial intelligence, even though its artificial intelligence is real, our gullibility, our susceptibility, our stupidity is rising to match the dumbness of our phone. I mean, if I think my phone is smart, if I think when somebody says a smart TV or a smartphone, that that is smart, I have dumbed myself down to the rhetoric of technology, and in the worst religious cases, that is what you get people to do. This is what is behind We Are I, the idea of a marketing team being given venture capital or control of an existing corporation to try to sell something that doesn't exist and may never exist, but I can get really rich by fooling you into thinking that I do. As you're speaking, I'm thinking you may have some really angry people in this shop. When you open, they will feel tricked and trapped. I right? do not think that's the case. This is, we're inviting people into the future. We're telling them this is the future. We're saying this is an imagined series of events, and it need not be that way. We're not in any sense trying to fool people into thinking that we really are optimizing their soul for the singularity. We are saying you're walking in to a game. We want you to play with us. We're taking your picture. We're putting your picture on the stained glass windows to play a game in the way in which when people read 1984, when people read Brave New World, they had a distance and we're definitely providing aesthetic distance. This is where Anya Neumann Roxanne Kendersley, Beatrice Murch, and Carrie Parker think as forensic futurists uh, it may be going. I think that's really important, if I might just come in here, um, that people get the sense of agency, that they can actually shape and reshape and restage the future. That's almost where I feel the anger might come from, the, 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 the sort of awakening, if you like, of saying, oh my gosh, it's gone so far already. We must do something about this. So what are we giving them to, to work with? Um, that, um, for instance, we will have a salon, a soul salon, where we invite artists and invite a discussion about those, those issues. And we will invite school children in and, and have teach-ins where we use some of the digital assets we have been building to and discuss, um, discuss the dangers and the benefits of, of digital technologies. And I guess what is really important here is to, to adopt and demand technology for change and not changing something in technology. I think we will be giving people lots of different experiences. We're also going to have a website, we should mention that, where people can engage in, in different ways in those questions. You're seeing this as the start of an empowering process. Exactly, yeah. Anya, earlier on somebody used the phrase metaverse. Can you explain your understanding of what is the metaverse and how does this project sit within that because that's a new idea for me and I'm just trying to understand it. 
My research in Cambridge Digital Humanities is focusing on space and I'm very interested in the intersection of digital and, and physical space, so basically augmented space. The metaverse is going to be a social medium where different platforms are going to be connected and interrelated but they will also relate to, to the physical space. So it's basically, you can think of it as a live experience where you can, which you can join at any point in physical space and you can experience something in the virtual world live with other people and create something in the virtual world, like in a game, for instance. I mean, you already have in-game concerts and then bring this into the physical world. So the metaverse, I guess, is, is the proposition of connecting those different platforms like Facebook and Fortnite, for instance, these big games and providers with each other. So people can, for instance, in, in virtual reality, go through these platforms and be connected. But there will be also interfaces with, with our physical world. And, and this is where we come in, because we had a CDH Open Seminar on, <laughs> I called it, the theatres and fictions of the metaverse. We discussed the notion of openness and transparency, and who would, be, who would it be who would build the metaverse, and for whom, and why? And we questioned some of the ideological underpinnings, but I think where we are I comes in is that you really also have to ask about form and the aesthetics and, and what is going to be the cultural form of digital content. Um, they're claiming, for instance, that, that they will build like an entire new economy, which is working independently or perhaps also in, in relationship to our economy now. And one of the more idealistic propositions is that content creators will be paid directly. So we don't have these big companies anymore who are disseminating um, digital content. What is so important, and I guess that's part of our proposition, is to make the metaverse theatrical. Because, of course, what's wonderful about theatre is, is that it's both real and not real, in the sense that you're real, you're sitting in a room with actors doing real things in real time, but at the same time, we're all agreeing to enter into this fiction together because we know they're actors, and yet we cry when they get hurt or whatever because we're entering into that fiction. So do you think that's theatre, despite the fact that it's a very ancient form of art is an amazing way to map out some of the, the tension. It does reveal agency and the most beautiful moment in, in theatre is when you realise how representation and reality intersect. And we're interested about the, the relationship people have to technology especially digital technology. And when they come into this room and they, they position themselves, the room is also going to read them. And by making it theatrical, we're making this transparent. So this is on the back of a bigger project on restaging public spaces, where we're thinking post or <laughs> in the wake of the pandemic still, I guess. How do we want to co-create public spaces and how can we make them more diverse without the machine agency 
organizing that space for us. So, our smartphones and other can't-live-without devices hold our digital souls in a vice-like grip. During times of panic and pandemic, we find ourselves endlessly, helplessly doom-scrolling. But why not demand its digital twin? Joy-scrolling, perhaps. How could projects such as We Are I and The Faust Shop transport us, playfully, to a more positive understanding of what we've signed up for? I would hope what I talked about earlier of lifting the lid off of the user experience so that people kind of get a visceral understanding of what it is that they are doing and the data that comes in and that you don't even realize that the computer gets from your usage of the of the website because we're all aware of cookies but we don't really understand what they do some people understand the concept of a heat map on a website but what does that actually mean how does moving your mouse actually make the website interact with the user and the terms and conditions that you accept without reading. What are you agreeing to? Those, you know, kind of Faustian deals that you make of the, on a daily basis without really understanding what you've, what you've done. One thing that I, I didn't really touch on at all is I have a five-year-old son and we are slowly letting him use computers. And my husband will not let him get a tablet. He can only use the computer so that he can actually create things rather than just consume content with a tablet. And so it's, you know, that that creative outlet and continuing to create things, whether it's computer code or photography or audio or whatever, put content out there and then you are in control of the data that you are making because you are creating it and putting it out there yourself. And that's so interesting because of course in Silicon Valley, you know, the schools and nurseries are absolutely notorious, the very uh, expensive ones where the tech giants' children go. They do woodcraft and knitting and pottery and they're not anywhere near screens. No, no, it's 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 a very interesting dichotomy. And you saw that a little bit in the movie, The Social Dilemma, where, you know, one of the, the I think it was a marketing executive was like, no, I don't let my kid use the computer at all, because I know how we get the hooks into them. Do you find that hypocritical? Uh, yes, I think that if you know that it's so bad, then work on something else that is better. I mean, it was good that they were speaking out and that they had kind of, as Carrie would say, had a come to Jesus moment and realized what they were doing. But at, still at that point in time, they were pocketing the salary of what they were doing. So, yeah, you know, trying to live your life ethically and going forward that's not always easy. Convenience and usability are not always on the same wavelength. What about you, Roxanne, as an artist? Do you have children and what kind of access to computers and tech do you allow in your home or do you want them to be makers first? I have two children. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And our access to technology is limited. Uh, Unsurprising for a stone-carving workshop, but... 
We feel that to connect to your hands first is important, to make things, to put things into the world. Where as Beatrice was saying, we're in a process of consumption. And so all of the easy access to computers for children is on tablet. I mean, especially over the pandemic, we were sold educational tools on a tablet where children are essentially plugging themselves in and receiving information. The interactiveness is not there and they are not learning efficiently or effectively. And we see that a, a child learning through play and playing with their hands learns a huge deal more than someone who's sitting in front of a computer screen. And Anya, you mentioned you were going to be bringing school visits into the WeRI shop. How do you expect these young children who have grown up as, as technologically aware babies from the get-go, how do you expect them to react to the kind of questions you'll be asking them? I think, and Carrie keeps saying that actually, that they will immediately understand what we're getting at because they have been growing up with the eye, <laughs> with the iPad, with, with all sorts of products, the iPhone, to an extent that we who are still remembering the, the birth of the internet, and I certainly still remember the sound of the modem, it will be very powerful to see how they are co-creating the space and how ready they are to get their digital souls back and to empower them also, we want to invite them then back into the space with, with a different proposition for them to make suggestions for what technology should look like. And I think the most important part of this is that we're going to be in physical space in three dimensions. I think what we're aiming for is that people forget about social media, why they are in our space, or why they are acting out a possible future which they can influence. So they live fully in the moment for as long as they're in the Faust shop. Yes. People are entering into a game. It's like a haunted house. It is like going to a horror film. We're saying, okay, this is a possible future. This might happen. And when they walk out, what I would like them to think is that, you know, that is a future that depends upon what I do now. It could go this way, but when you walk out, you're not feeling disempowered. You are feeling empowered by realizing what I'm doing now, what I'm allowing to be, have done with my data. It's going to be post-traumatic. You're not going to get closure. You are walking out and, and you have to take this decision every day. I'm going to try walking out of the Faust shop now, but am I really free to leave? Have I given enough of myself away? Nervously, I approach Roxanne and her clipboard again. You've given us everything we need for now. We're going to be in touch with you, but of course you may leave, and as you leave, take a look at our optimised characters, see the future that you could have, and think about how wonderful the future could be. But it's up to me. But it's up to you. Thank you very much indeed to Roxanne Kindersley, Dr. Anya Neumann, Carrie Parker and Beatrice Merch on Zoom. The Faust Shop will open to the public in March 2022 and you can sign up to participate in this immersive theatrical event and other related projects at faust-shop.org. Following the recording of this episode, Roxanne Kindersley and Carrie Parker left the team and Carrie continues to develop We Are I in a different direction.
Cambridge Digital Humanities conducts research and teaching at the intersection between computing and culture, rethinking what the humanities could and should be in an age of big data, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Digital Cultures offers a glimpse inside the work of the centre and our shared digital future and is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV. Thanks for switching on. Thank you.